So our scripture reading this morning is uh, from the gospel according to John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to read... uh, We're going to read verses 13 through 21. You can find the words in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible, but you can turn, of course, in your Bible to it as well. And uh, while you're doing that, I'll just uh, remind you that there is an outline of the sermon uh, on the back of the bulletin just as a bit of a roadmap to help us understand where we're going and uh, why I'm saying the things I'm saying. Um, Also, uh, typically, we probably won't do that this Sunday, but typically we would also uh, have an opportunity to take questions after the message uh, for you to... um, get clarification perhaps on something, and you could text those questions to me. Just keep that in mind in case we do have a few minutes uh, at the end of the message this morning for that purpose. But for now, turn your attention to God's Word. This is John chapter 17, beginning at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So far, the reading of God's Word. So for those of you who, uh, who are visiting this morning, just to, just to share with you what we've been up to here at Grace Valley Church, we've been in the midst of a, uh, a, a short series uh, on what we're calling gospel-centered living. And here's the thing. The gospel is this profound, powerful message that is supposed to change our lives. When you... Uh, embrace the gospel, and and one of the summaries of the gospel, it's not the only summary of the gospel, but a summary of the gospel that I appreciate is, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. That's the gospel. That's a a, a very brief summary of what the gospel message is. Jesus lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died. When you embrace that message, when that sinks into you, then you become a follower of Jesus Christ. You become a Christian. And what we've been wrestling with is, okay, what does that do to my life? The gospel is supposed to be a power. It's supposed to have a power in the day-to-day, nitty-gritty living of my, my experience. And, and we've been trying to figure out how this, this message of the gospel does impact our day-to-day livings. And so we've been thinking about the holiness of God. We've been uh, thinking about our sin and uh, understanding sin, what it is and and, uh, what it means to know that you are a sinner. We've been talking about God's law and understanding the role of God's law in the life of a Christian. We've been talking about repentance and forgiveness and all kinds of stuff. And if uh, if you think about it, what we've been thinking about largely is about how the gospel works internally, meaning how it, uh, it does something in us, how it works on us, how it does something in us. It's, it's kind of this internal thing. 
And, and we've not been thinking so much about, about what it does externally. But according to Scripture, the gospel is supposed to do something to us externally, meaning what I mean by that is it's supposed to create this, this external propulsion and compulsion to love and serve other people. Uh, what I'm talking about is mission. The gospel is meant to propel us into mission. It's meant to propel us into mission. Here's the thesis this morning, okay? What's the thesis statement for this morning? It's this. Mission is at the core of life. Or to put it another way, mission is what makes life worth living. Or let me put this another way. Uh, I was at men's prayer uh, Wednesday morning. Every Wednesday morning, a bunch of men get together uh, at 6.30s at the office. Welcome to attend. Anybody, doesn't matter if you don't go to Grace Valley. If you want to come and pray, feel free to do it. But anyhow, I was there with uh, a bunch of guys, and we prayed a, a prayer that had, a, had an interesting theme. Like everybody sort of was praying along these lines. We were all praying uh, to some degree or another that, that God would do something about our ambivalence that God would do something about our lack of passion, about the, the lack of fire. We were asking God to light a fire in us to, 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 to be passionate about our relationship with Him and about, about our call to be His followers. And what, I, what struck me at one point was, was that what we were really praying for was we were praying for a renewed sense of mission. Or let me put it another way. Um... Do you, do you ever find, if you're a Christian anyway, do you ever find your faith sort of blasé? It feels kind of boring, sort of routine. What's wrong with the church today? Why is the church not a more powerful force in our culture? Does it ever feel to you like church is kind of boring, blasé, irrelevant, routine? I think it's because we go through these times where we have a loss of mission personally as a Christian and, and I think the church writ large has kind of lost its sense of mission. Let me put it one more way in case you don't understand what I'm trying to get at yet. What is it that invigorates a Christian? What is it that causes a believer to, to be really passionate about their faith, to really, to really experience their God's presence and God's power in their lives? What is it that, that gives their faith life and, 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 and joie de vivre, if I can use that? I don't know French at all, but I know that phrase, joie de vivre. I think I said it right, too. What is it that does that? It's mission. What makes a church energetic, energized? What makes a church exciting? What makes a church a, a, power, a, a powerful instrument of God? It's mission. Mission is, mission's everything, friends. You need a mission. Jesus gives a mission. That's what this morning is about. We're going to look at mission, the place of mission. What We're going to look at what mission is, the definition of mission. We're going to look at the cost of mission. And then we're going to look at the power for mission and, ex and, and then see what the result of mission is. Those are the four things. Let's go. First of all, a definition of mission. In this passage that we read, you're like, what does that have to do with mission? I don't see the word in there anywhere, but yes, you do, actually. Mission, 
comes from the Latin word missio, which basically just means sent. So if you look in verse, uh, in verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus was sent, and therefore, we are sent. Okay. First implication. To be on mission, to experience mission, means that you have to be under authority. You can't be sent on a mission if there's nobody sending you on a mission. Mission doesn't exist without a sent person, but also it doesn't exist without a sender. This means when you're on mission, it means that you are bound to a cause that is bigger than you. It means that, that, that someone, a sender, or something, a cause, is more important to you, and listen for it, than your own personal fulfillment, than your own personal happiness, than your own personal needs, than your own personal freedom. You subordinate yourself to something outside yourself. You have to if you're going to be sent on mission. Now, that means you're living for something bigger than you when you're on mission. And that, friends, is a problem. It's a big problem, but we're going to talk more about that later. For now, just understand that it means you have to be under authority. Okay, what's a mission of the Christian? If Christians are on mission, what's their mission? Look at verse 21. Jesus says this, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, and here's the reason for it all, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The mission of a Christian is to convince the world that God sent Jesus. Our mission, if you're, a, if you're a Christian, is to convince the world of Christ's mission. Your personal mission as a Christian and the mission of the church as gathered Christians together is to show forth Jesus Christ, is to, is to proclaim the gospel, the mission of Jesus, that he came to what? Live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. Now, that has all kinds of implications. It means that we are sinners in need of grace, and it means that the world has meaning and purpose, and it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, that's all part of it, absolutely true. But the mission of the church and the mission of a Christian is to convince the world that Jesus really is who he says he is and really did what he said he came to do. Now, some people say, yeah, absolutely, evangelize. That's mission. Well, yeah, we are supposed to evangelize, meaning with words, tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you look at verse 19... It says, for their sake I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified, meaning made holy, which we learned just a, a few uh, weeks ago. The word holy simply means to be set apart, be different, okay, to be set apart for a specific purpose, okay? And then if you look at verse uh, 21, Jesus says that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are, me, are in me, and I may be in you. The mission of the church if you put those two things together, 
is to be so holy, to be so set apart, to be so different and so unified, meaning so together as a body that the world just has to look at us and has to look at the church and has to say, has to wrestle with this guy, Jesus. Because there's no other explanation for how in the world these people can be the way they are. And so that means that mission is way, way bigger than just sharing Jesus with non-Christians. Something which many of you should be very happy to hear because the thing that terrifies you more than anything else is sharing Jesus with non-Christians. And so you think all the time, I suck at mission, I suck at mission, I suck at mission. There's good news for you, friend. Mission is way, 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 way bigger than that. Kyle and Julie and all of you who are parents who are committed to raising your children to know who Jesus is and to give their lives to him, to do something the world thinks is insane, which is to give up autonomy over your own life, you're in mission. You're in mission. When your next door neighbor is elderly and alone and has, uh, has, uh, has health problems and you invest in your neighbor and you invite them over to your place for meals and you send your kids over there to take care of their, their property for them because they can't do it themselves, you're in mission. When you're an employer and your employee screws up and what they've ever experienced when they screw up is dock and pay or you're out of here and you work, sit down and say, well, how can we improve things? How can we make things better? I'm not going to dock your pay. Or maybe I was partly to blame for your poor performance because I didn't explain things very well. And they go, whoa, what a weird place to work. You're in mission. And when you're an employee who is not trying to figure out how in the world can I do the least amount of work possible for the maximum amount of pay... But instead, I try my best in this place and work for this person as if it was my own business because when they flourish, I know that they will be good to me and I will flourish too. You're in mission. Why? Because you're a weirdo. Because you don't fit in. Because you're being holy. That's all mission. And of course, yes. When you finally get up the gumption to say, here's why I'm weird, it's because I believe in Jesus, you're in mission. Um, look, some, maybe someone's here this morning and you, frankly, you don't find Christianity compelling at all. You have doubts about it. You don't even really know why you're here. Somebody invited you and you felt like you had to be here. Maybe you like, you got to be here for them. But the whole Christianity thing, it's not your cup of tea. You don't buy it. You don't understand it. Maybe, maybe, may, I'm not saying for sure, but maybe it's because you've never really seen a holy person. And you've never really been piqued to go, what's with them? I always like the story of Benjamin Franklin. This guy is brilliant, okay? Benjamin Franklin. He was not a Christian at all. But there was a, a Christian evangelist from Britain who came to the United States pretty regularly by the name of George Whitfield. And every time he came, Ben Franklin had to go listen to him preach. And every time he went to listen to him preach, he was like, I am not giving any money to this guy. There is no way I'm giving any. And by the end of the sermon, he'd be like pulling out his checkbook and dropping just huge amounts of money on him. And, and people were like, why do you do this, Ben? And he's like, 
I don't believe a word he says, but man, I know he believes it, and, and I see it. I see it in the person that he is, in the life that he, that he displays. He is, he is a remarkable individual. You know that, that old saying, they, they will know we are Christians by our love? That's absolutely it. That's it. That's mission. That's the definition of mission, at least from this text. Okay, but here's the thing. If you do that, you need to understand. If you, Jesus says this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The world hated them. I'm not sure Jesus can use a stronger word to describe how the world is going to respond to those who are in mission for him. See, at the very least, if you are in mission, at the very least, people are going to misunderstand you. They're going to think you're weird. But at the very worst, they're going to think you're evil. Here's, here's an example of weird, okay? It's winter, well, it's almost winter time. They say we're going to have more snow this winter than we've had in like the last three or four or five years. Let's hope, right, so that we get like a real winter again here in southern Ontario. Okay, yes and amen, thank you. Uh, um, Sunday morning rolls around and your neighbor is just getting the paper from outside in their robe with their cup of coffee and they see you, and I'm going to pick on a particular you at this point, those of you who have very young children and a whole whack of them, they see you outside scraping off the car in the freezing cold and, 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 uh, and, and running back inside and then grabbing kid number one that's in this big snow suit, they look like a black marshmallow or something, and you bring them over into the car and you stuff them in this car seat and they're like, wah, like this. And then you go inside and you grab the next one and then your spouse comes out and they're all cranky because you didn't wipe the snow off the sidewalk and so their boots or their shoes are getting all wet and stuff like that. And you're stuffed in the car to go to church. And your neighbor goes, what a nut job. Why would you put yourself through that week in and week out? That's weird. But then there's a little bigger, weirder. Maybe, maybe, maybe the word isn't weird now. Maybe the word is stupid. Your friends and your neighbors see that you give so much money away that when they get together and they say, hey, let's all go south together this winter. Wouldn't that be awesome? And you say... Sorry, I can't quite pull that off. Or the CRA gets your tax returns and they look at it and they say, Man, we got to audit this person because nobody gives that much money away. You make sacrifices with your money that actually cramp your style so that you can't do the things that other people with your income level would do and can do. And the CRA has to audit you. I like to tell Christians, have you ever been audited? If not, you're probably not giving enough money away. And they think, you're stupid. So that's a little bigger. But then they may think you're evil. I mean, when you stand on certain convictions and you say, I can't agree with the direction of our culture on certain social issues of the day, they don't say you're different. They don't say you have a new perspective. They say you're bigoted. They say maybe you're dangerous. And not just as an individual, but as an institution. They say, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to grant law degrees. Because you're a danger to society. And frankly, unfortunately, the sad reality is, is that this sometimes happens between Christian and Christian. Your views become distasteful. 
and you can't talk about them. It's going to cost you that. If you're going to be on mission, it's going to cost you that. It's not going to just cost you that. It gets worse. Hang in there. Again, no laughter. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me, I have sent them. In the same way you sent me, I am sending them. It's the same kind of sending. What's the pattern of your sending? The pattern of your sending is your Savior. When you want to know what does it look like for you to be sent into the world, you have to look at Him and you have to see how He has been sent into this world. And He has been sent into this world, you see? He, was given, he gave up comfort. He gave up time. He gave up joy. He gave up accolades. He gave up power. He gave up wealth. He gave up majesty to be sent into the world for you and me. You have to go into the world. There has been a, a tendency among Christians in history to get out of the world. They say, well, yeah, the world's a dangerous place. Excuse me. The, danger, the world is a dangerous place. I don't want to be polluted by the world, and so I need to get out of the world. I need to separate myself from the world. But Jesus came into the world and he says, I'm sending you into the world. That means that you will have to engage your life. You will have to, you will have to become deeply engaged with people who are different from you. They have different ethnic backgrounds. They have different um, uh, economic backgrounds from you. You will have to get engaged with people who are troubled who have emotional baggage, who have, have very painful histories, and that can be extremely draining, both emotionally and economically, and in terms of your time, which is one of your most important commodities or resources. Getting involved with the world gives you headaches. Why do you think people just want to drive into their driveway, not say hello to their neighbor, and go inside the door and shut off the lights because they got enough of their own problems? Why would they want to get involved with other people's problems? They got their own garbage to deal with. Why do they want to deal with someone else's garbage? But when you're into the world, you're not out of the world and polluted from the world and isolated from the world, and you're not in the world, meaning you're not sedu attracted by and, and, and seduced by the world, but you're into the world. That means you're going to get your hands dirty because you're going to do it as he sent you, as, he, as his father sent him. Jesus got... Did Jesus get his hands dirty or what? He put himself on the line. You'll do the same thing. It'll cost you. It'll cost you. Ugh. Right? Ugh. We need power for that. How are you going to pull that off? How are you going to follow this? You need power. Look at verse 14 and 20. Verse 14 says... I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He talks about the word, giving the word, giving the word. What does he say? For two things. First of all, when he's talking about the word, he's talking about that gospel. He's talking about the, te the testimony of Jesus Christ, who was on mission before we were. That's why he refers to this mission himself in verse 19 when he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. I set my apart for this, myself apart for this mission for their sake. Here's the point. When you, when you meditate on his mission first, you are empowered for mission yourself. See, we say this all the time here. God doesn't ask anything of you that he didn't do first. This is the amazing thing about the Christian God. He doesn't ask you to do anything that he has not done first. 
And when you meditate on that, that he had everything and he gave up everything for you, you can at least be willing to risk some of what you have. You can at least start to step out in faith and trust and start following his mission. And he doesn't just, he doesn't just stop there. He says also this in verse 20 where he says, but I'm also asking for those who will believe in me through their word. You hear that? They will believe in me through their word. He's promising success. Some of you are probably sitting here and going, yeah, if I try this, like, no, it never worked. Nobody ever becomes a Christian. I haven't led anybody to faith. I haven't, I haven't even made a single person wonder, to be honest. Is it even possible? Jesus says, it will happen. People will believe. Maybe it won't be your own personal individual testimony to your next door neighbor, but maybe through your collective testimony as a church, the promise is that it will happen. People will step up and look. The Holy Spirit will change people's hearts through your ministry. It is a guarantee. Imagine entering a race, right? You're, imagine you step up, up against Usain Bolt in the 100-meter final, and you're thinking, there's just no chance, right? I mean, it's Usain Bolt. Okay, now who's the guy? Justin Gatlin beat him at the last world championships. I don't know if you know this, but he finally lost to a guy who for the last 10 years had been trying to beat him and getting his Losing badly every time. But he kept coming, he kept coming, he kept coming, and he finally beat him. And when he was interviewed afterwards, they asked him, he said, I just knew deep down in my soul that I was going to win. I just knew that I would finally do it. Well, imagine if you were stepping up against both of these guys, and you thought, I don't have a chance, I don't have a, a hope of, of winning this, and Jesus stepped onto the, to the, to the track just before the race, and he whispered in your ear, by the way, you've got this, I promise. What would you think then? Wouldn't you be looking over and saying, Usain, Justin, eat my dust, boys. But Jesus has said that. That's exactly what he says right here. You have power in knowing that the the victory is guaranteed. Last point, and this is maybe the most mind-blowing part of the whole thing. Um, I heard actually Tim Keller do a series of talks on missions, and he just referenced this verse and mentioned this, and it just sort of blew my mind and got me thinking about it. The result of mission, okay, is deep and profound, satisfying joy, even if it costs it pays way better than it costs. In verse 13, Jesus says this, Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What an interesting phrase, my joy fulfilled in themselves. And what is he talking about there? Well, Hebrews 12, verse 3 says this, Fix your eyes on... Uh, I have this, like I've said this, I don't know how many times. For the, who, for the joy set before me... Scorn the, no, scorning its shame. Endured, there. Who for the joy set before me, and him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. 
the joy that Jesus had, which was a profound, deep, incredible joy, was this joy of being on a mission to save the world. That gave him tremendous joy. And for that joy, he was willing to go through all this stuff, including the cross, including hell itself for you and me, so that he could make us your, his, his brothers and sisters and children of the God who created us. And therefore, what he's saying is, is that there is a deep and profound, what's the joy of God like? I mean, we can't even imagine what that must be like, the sense of joy. You think you've experienced joy. You don't know nothing compared to the joy of the divine one who is pure, unfettered, infinite joy. And he's saying, my joy may be in them. When you are on mission, you experience incredible joy. This is what Jesus is saying. Look, you and I were made for mission. We were created to be on mission. Remember I just said before at the very beginning, you know, being on mission means that you have to be under authority and you have to submit to authority and you have to, you have to say my happiness is not the most important thing. That's exactly right. That's exactly true. We were created to do this, to live for something bigger than us. Look at, look at kids. Look at stories that kids love. What do they love? Stories of heroes, right? Going on this great world-saving mission. In fact, all the best stories are like that. Your favorite stories are like that. They're about a person or about a group that is willing to sacrifice themselves to overcome a terrible evil and save the world. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. I can't believe I just compared those two. <laughs> but in any case, it's the same principle at work. Kid we're drawn to these heroic stories of sacrifice for something bigger than us. Ask a seven-year-old, what do you want to be when, they, when you grow up? Oh, I want to work in an office at a computer. No, that's what ends up happening in a broken world. But what they want to do... They want to be a police officer. They want to be a firefighter. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a, a soldier. They want to do something that matters. They want to save the world. They want to be on mission. Because the adventure, the quest, is what makes life fulfilling. You know, I, I, every November, I get, you, you, it's Remembrance Day, right? And this is what I love about Remembrance Day. CBC, CTV, Global, every television station, they do stories on some 17-year-old kid who's not old enough to go to war but signs themselves up to go to Europe to go to war. Some boy, no offense to my son, my, my son's age, signs up to go to war, to carry a gun, to sit in trenches, to, to storm the enemy with bullets whizzing past them. And I think to myself, how could you do that? And it's, you know, it's a sense of adventure and it's a sense of excitement, but that's not all it is. They, they believed in something bigger than themselves. There was this concept, there was this idea like freedom that they said needed to be defended and they were willing to risk their lives for the sake of that something bigger. Why is your life so boring? You know what the message of our culture is today? You live for yourself. The most important thing in your world is you, your own personal happiness. There is nothing bigger than you. There is nothing more important than you. You live for you, even the Christian version, which is just God wants me to be happy, is basically the most important thing in your life is you. But here's the irony. When you exaggerate yourself to the point where the most important thing 
in you in the world is you when you exaggerate your significance you actually lose your significance because now you don't make an impact on anything but you when you live for you you're really living for nothing why do you think there's so many young people growing up depressed it's not just because they're, too, they're on their screens too much, and you know, their neuroplasticity is making their brain re get rewired and stuff. That's part of it. I'm not poo-pooing that, but there's something deeper going on. They're growing up in a world that tells them there's nothing to go for. So why get up at all? Life just becomes meh. And here's Jesus he says, I have opened up a cleft in the walls of this pitiless world, and I am bringing the life of heaven down into it. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. And he says to you, and he says to me, I want you to be part of that mission. That's what invigorates. That's what gives joy. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their lives will lose it but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it it's amazing when you when you seek to find yourself <laughs> you lose yourself and when you seek to find jesus you find yourself too the joy of mission let's pray father thank you for the gift of mission thank you for the joy of mission Help us, Father, to, to see that living for something bigger than us is the thing that really actually invigorates life and makes it worth living. Help us to trust that when we give ourselves to you and to your mission, we are doing nothing more than you have done for us first. And we, we benefit in ways we could never imagine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.